Thank you guys for being with us today. Today we are going to be looking at the book of Ezra. Now chances are you haven't spent a lot of time in this book. Chances are you probably haven't studied it. Funny thing, the way I do my sermons is after I've written it and after I've manuscripted it and typed it all out and get it ready, one thing I like to do is I like to see what other preachers take out of this text. And so as I started to search to see, you know, am I missing something? Did another preacher find something in this text that maybe I've missed? Funny thing, I couldn't find any other guy that preached on this before. This is a kind of rare text. It's not popular, but for no good reason. There's definitely some truth here in the text of Ezra. And what we're going to be learning today is some laws of leadership inspired by how Ezra chose to live his life. See, what's happening is that we're going to look at the book of Ezra, but funny thing, a little, little tidbit of information. Before Back, I don't know how to get my words right. Ezra and Nehemiah were once one book. It was once one book. And years after it was written, it was separated into two books. And in those two books, originally one book, you're going to see three characters. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. These three guys were used after the exile. After the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem, as we saw in Daniel. Daniel was living in exile. What ends up happening is they are allowed to come back. And these three guys each come at a different time. First Zerubbabel, then Ezra, then Nehemiah. Each to accomplish a different task. Each to accomplish something different. Now something significant significant about all three of these is there are three words that really stand true in each of their stories. Returning, rebuilding, and resisting. All three of them have a similar story where they were allowed to go from a king. A king allowed them to return. And the king in each of these three situations provided what they needed in order to get the job done. A pagan king provided what was needed to rebuild Jerusalem. And then after they started to do their rebuilding, there was obviously in each story some form of resistance. There's some form of resisting from the community, from the enemy, but also there was them resisting the enemy, them resisting themselves, them resisting temptation. And so as we look at this text and we notice the three R's, the returning, the rebuilding, and the resisting, what we're going to notice is in each three of these guys' cases, they were incredible leaders. Now they were each called to do the same thing. They were each called to be builders. Building is one of the toughest things anybody can do. It's tough to build a business, to build a home, Build a building, a bank account, a career, a marriage, a family. Building is tough work. Building takes a lot of hard work, especially when you start from the ground floor. A trend right now is a lot of young seminary students and a lot of young men called into ministry. They are really excited about doing church planting. Starting from the ground up, starting from scratch and rebuilding or building up a church that never existed before and making much of Jesus in a community. I think that is great. That is incredibly hard work. Let me tell you, I have never felt the call to be a church planter. I think it takes a very specific calling, a very specific set of skills. But also, I'm going to say something that's harder. Something harder than church planning, something harder than rebuild, something harder than building is rebuilding. See, it's hard to build anything, but it is much harder to rebuild. It's hard to build a business from the ground up, but it's even harder 
to rebuild a business or a brand after it has been in serious decline or gone under and declared bankruptcy. It's hard to rebuild a retirement or a nest egg, especially after a stock market crash. It's hard to build a marriage, period, but it's much more difficult to rebuild a marriage after things have crumbled. Use your imagination. Rebuilding is difficult no matter what the circumstance. The thing is, is that these men weren't called to simply build. They were called to rebuild what once was. They are called to rebuild what once was. This was going to take so much difficulty. They were going to use people, people that were set in their ways, people that had their own ideas, people that were determined to do things in their own manner. Listen, I will say nine times out of ten, what is significantly harder than church planning is something that we, a little trendy word we use called church revitalization. What that means is a pastor comes into a church that is in serious decline and through the power of the Holy Spirit turns it around and sees that church grow and thrive. I think that is harder than church planning because in church revitalization or rebuilding, what you're trying to do is take a group of people in a mindset that was led them into decline and change their mindset, change their culture to let them see some fruit. See, here's what's going on with Ezra. Ezra is called to rebuild, to church revitalize. See, all of the other guys, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, were called to be literal builders. Zerubbabel built the temple. Nehemiah built the walls. We'll talk about him next week. Ezra had a much harder task. He was called to rebuild the culture. See, Ezra finds his purpose in identifying a problem. The problem was is that the people were in Jerusalem. The people were back in the promised land. The people were back in where God had called them to be. But they were not acting like the children of God. This culture, the structure, their faith had been decimated. It had been rocked. It had been watered down and compromised had set in its place. The culture that was currently there of that generation was not one of the previous generation. See, I always find this interesting. See, always, the older generation is always looked down on the younger generation. And that's not just current in this state. In this culture of today, that has been this way forever. My older people in the room, you guys can remember when you were once the younger generation and the older generation looked down on you. It's this cycle that continues to happen day after day after day. And one day, my generation, and it's going to be the grumpy group of people looking down on the generation below us. Unless we do something. Unless we change something, hear me out. Here, here's my thing. One day I was getting griped at by an older guy when I was a youth pastor. And he was griping at me about how horrible the generation is and how horrible my generation is. And you know what, you millennials don't know nothing. You don't know nothing about the faith. Y'all are good. For, and he got after us on everything there could be. And finally, I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me some peace in the moment and gave me some great words. And I looked up at this man who was so angry about my generation and I said, you know what I wonder? What generation raised mine? I, I just sat there. He got real mad and then he just walked away. <laughs> Let me tell you something. We are responsible for the generation below us. We are responsible for the generation below us. And listen, please don't complain about the generation below you. Blame yourself if we didn't turn out the way you wanted us to because you raised us. Hear me out. 
Hear me out. If we don't pass down the things that are important to us, to the younger generation, don't get upset when they don't start to live it out. Don't get upset when the younger generation isn't acting like Jesus and they're not making church their priority and they're not following after God if you didn't teach them to do so. I think this is huge. Here's what's going on with Ezra, though. Ezra is inheriting a generation where the older generation did not disciple them well. They're walking into the situation where the pagan kings had sent them back to Jerusalem. But here's what the pagan kings did. The pagan kings didn't just send Jews back to Jerusalem. They sent back other pagans as well. They sent back in all of these different types of groups of people to where Jerusalem was no longer just for Jews. It had all different types of people in it. And what ended up happening there is that it ended up being this melting pot to where the faith and following after the Lord wasn't the most popular thing anymore. And people started to compromise. Intermarriage started to happen. And because of that, the faith got diluted. And in turn, Ezra inherits this culture that's no longer following after Jesus. It's this watered-down version of the faith. Can I just go ahead and tell you that the gospel should never be watered down. The gospel is strong. The gospel is potent. Don't you dare mix it with anything else but itself because you're just going to mess it up. Here's what happens. That generation, the older generation, allowed for it to be watered down. The younger generation inherits that and in turn just starts to live out what they know to be true, which is where all these other faiths are represented. Christianity really isn't taken seriously, so Ezra has to do something. The solution that God had was to send Ezra into that situation, to send him in to make a difference. Listen, he found his purpose in the problem and in turn, he goes to be the solution. He doesn't simply complain. Hear that. He goes and he is the solution. God puts a man on the scene. God always puts a man. Listen, if our culture, if our generation, if culture in itself today was a movie, we would definitely have comedy. There would definitely be some drama. There'd probably be some romance. And my goodness, we know that there'd be a whole lot of action in that movie. But the one thing that there needs to be is a leading man. There needs to be a lead character, my goodness, that is boldly pursuing Jesus. And in the story of your life, God has called you to be that leading man and that leading woman, to be the fixer of the problems that you see in the movie drama that is your life. God didn't call you to be the victim. God called you to be the victor. God didn't call you to be the complainer. He called you to be the one that is a part of the solution. So hear me, be leading men and leading women in your story for the cause of Christ. So many of you guys are leading, or you, so, so many of you guys are starring in the movie of your life and you've turned it into a drama. You have turned it into a drama. Some of you guys have turned it into a comedy. Not in a good way, everybody else is just laughing at you. Some of you guys have turned it in to this crazy action scene. But can I ask, how many of you guys have turned your life, if it was to be categorized into a movie, into a Christian film where Christ is seen in every scene? My goodness, I think that's what we should be looking for. We need to be looking to be creating a life that if a motion picture was put in it, my goodness, Christ would be the center theme of it in every single scene. See, Ezra comes into the scene, and what does he do to change their perspective? Well, Ezra becomes a preacher. Ezra decides to preach 
truth to preach God's word every single chance he gets. See, Ezra wouldn't be the most popular leader. One thing that we notice in Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, is you notice all of those genealogies, that boring stuff that we really skip, we don't pay attention to. There's a reason why it's there. The reason why that is there is because what they want us to know is that Ezra was a direct descendant of the high priest Aaron. Remember Moses' brother, the very first priest, Aaron. That was his great, 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 great granddaddy. And because of that, Ezra knew everything there was to know about the law. Ezra knew everything there was to know about growing up, following after the Lord. And here's what's interesting. Ezra had been discipled well. That's what that is saying. It's saying that the older generation made sure that Ezra knew what truth was. Made sure that Ezra knew what culture was. Made sure that Ezra understood what the Jewish culture was supposed to be. So when Ezra was called to bring the Jewish culture back, he had been raised in it. Not because culture around him was the right culture, but because his parents made sure that he knew what truth really was. He was a student of the word. And that's what made Ezra significant. See, Ezra became a revivalist. He became a reformer. He was a priest, but also Ezra was known to be a scribe, meaning, my goodness, this guy for a living would write down and copy the word of God constantly. This is what this guy did. Anytime there was a mistake, he would have to start over. There was all these rules on how you would even write the name of Yahweh Elohim. I mean, this guy took it so seriously. He understood and he knew the word of God. Let's look at verse six. Then Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel had given him. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God was on him. Now we're going to talk about Ezra's leadership. But Ezra was a leader because of the actions that he chose to commit before he was given the position as leader. See, here's what it says. First thing we see is Ezra went up. We're going to see his obedience here. Ezra went up. Ezra was faithful. He leads the people back. Past few weeks, we keep seeing words like, the word of the Lord came, so Elijah went. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, so Isaiah went. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, so Jeremiah went. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, so Jonah fled. The word of the Lord comes to Ezra, and Ezra goes up. Ezra is faithful. Now, I do think it's significant that it says that Ezra goes up, because funny thing, Jerusalem was actually west of where he was. He didn't go up, he went west. Why does it say up? Because often in scripture, it'll use the direction up to proclaim somebody is going into the will of God. By saying up, even though he was really going west, was him saying he was walking in to God's plan, God's direction. Hear this, leaders lead to who they follow. Leaders lead in the direction of whom they're following. Leaders lead people to Jesus. And when we are called to be leaders as Christians, we are called to lead people in the direction of Christ. Not in the direction of you. Not to make much of yourself, but to make much of Jesus. But then we see this. He was skilled in the law. He understood the word of God. He studied it. You want to hear another phrase? Godly leaders know the playbook. 
Godly leaders know the direction they're supposed to go. Godly leaders know what the culture is supposed to do because they've studied the word of God and they know what direction they're supposed to go. You cannot lead anybody if you don't know the direction that you're supposed to go. Little fun fact about Sean, I am the worst when it comes to navigation. I still get lost around Marshall. It is ridiculous. If I didn't have a GPS on my phone, I would be lost all the time. My wife gets so frustrated because everywhere we go, she has to make sure she's paying attention because she has to tell me every single turn. No matter what, for some reason, I am not hardwired to have any understanding as to where I am. Don't get it. But here's what's interesting here. When you're in the driver's seat, you better know where to go. You better know how to get there. When you're the leader, you have to make sure that you know how to get from point A to point B. The way that you know how to get from point A to point B is knowing where you are and knowing where you're going. That is huge. Knowing where you are and knowing where you're going, the only way that you will be aware of where you are and where you're going is by knowing God's word. Ezra was skilled in the law. Leaders know the playbook. But then I love what it says at the end of 6. And the king granted him all that he had asked. Godly leaders receive God's provision. Godly leaders receive God's provision. If God's called you to it and you are faithful into the hand of God, and you are walking people into the direction God's calling you to lead them, guess what? God will be faithful to provide whatever you need to get the job done. God will never call you to do anything and not give you the provision you need to complete it. My goodness, can I go ahead and tell you, Christians need to be, stop being afraid of failure. Because God won't call you to anything with the goal of you failing. My goodness. He's going to give you all the provision you need to get the job done. But then why did the king give him what he asked? The end of six, for the hand of the Lord, his God was on him. Godly leaders receive God's hand. See, Ezra had God's hand, not because Ezra wanted to make much of Ezra. It's because Ezra wanted to make much of the Lord. Ezra didn't want to make his name famous. Ezra wanted to make God's name famous, which is why God recognized that and put his hand on top of Ezra because he was going to lead people to Jesus. He was going to lead people to the Lord. Judges 16.20 is one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture for me because it talks about the hand of the Lord. See, what happens in this moment is you have Samson. Samson was a man that had God's hand on him. But he had misused it and gotten out of the will of the Lord far too often. What ends up happening is he is mocking his skills. He is mocking his ability and in turn mocking the Lord because he's not using his skills and his abilities in the way that God intended. He is misusing his power. He's misusing his leadership. He allows himself to be tied up. He allows his hair to be cut. And what it says in 1620 is, And she said, Delilah, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He woke up from his sleep thinking he would be able to make himself free just like he had done time and time before. Scariest words to me. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know. He didn't recognize that God's hand wasn't on him anymore. Can I tell you, as a pastor, as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, those are the scariest words for me. Because I want to make sure every single day that we have the hand of God upon us. 
I want to make sure that we are living a life to where God has his hand upon us. I want to make sure that we have no sin in the camp, that we do not have sin in our hearts. We are not walking around with rudeness in our hearts, with arrogance in our hearts, with sin in our lives, so that God will continue to keep his hand upon Emmanuel, keep his hand upon you as an individual, because you cannot lead without that hand of God upon you. Live a life where God's hand rests upon you. Let me tell you something. I don't believe that God simply just takes his hand off of people. I think people move away from it. I think that's really what happens. I think our disobedience leads us away from the hand of God. I don't think God simply takes it off. I think we remove ourselves. Hear me. That is terrifying to you, to me. It should be terrifying to you. Make sure the hand of the Lord is on your life. I had a feeling, I had this feeling that if Ezra was interviewed, interviewed by a news crew or TV station, what would end up happening was they'd be asking him, hey, Ezra, what's the secret of your success? Was it your talent, your marvelous gifts that you have, your obvious discipline, your scholarship, your willing to pay the price and study? And I have a feeling that Ezra would just be so humble about it. And he'd say, none of these things are my secret. The secret of my success is that the hand of the Lord is upon me. Ezra would have such a humble spirit. Hey, I'm not the sharpest. I'm not the brightest. My butter slides off my biscuit often. But I'm just being faithful to who God called me to be. I'm being faithful to be the leader God has called me to be. And in turn, he's blessing that. God is powering Ezra. Ezra wasn't the smartest or the brightest. I'm so grateful for that. Ezra was just faithful when I was younger. My goodness, so much passion. I had so much passion for the Lord, so much passion for ministry. And I remember sharing my passion with an older gentleman that had been in the ministry for years. And man, I really thought he would be encouraging. And if you know me, sometimes I just like spout off at the mouth. I just start going crazy. And it ends up being this crazy, passionate sermon that I ended up giving. And I started just basically telling him how much I wanted to be used by the Lord. I wanted to see God do some big things in my life and throughout my life. And in my lifetime, I wanted to see the next revival in America, like another great awakening. But here's what ended up happening. This guy looks at me and he goes, son, I'll never forget what he said. You're chasing hell with a water pistol. Oh, man, it broke my heart. I kind of got quiet and he kind of patted me on the back and the conversation was pretty much over. And I wish I could go back to him now that I had time to think about it. Because what he said wasn't true. If we have God's hand upon us, Emmanuel Baptist Church will never chase hell with a water pistol. We're going to chase hell with the full power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think we have to recognize that. I have to think we need to recognize the power of who's behind us. Y'all, one of my favorite movies, The Lion King. Ah, Sabinya, right? You with me? See, what's up with The Lion King is that there's this moment where Simba is being chased by all these evil hyenas. You know what I'm talking about, right? And they're about to get him, and homeboy's getting nervous, so he just decides he's going to roar up a little bit of courage and roar at these lions. But his roar is pretty pitiful, right? Sounds like a little cat. But what ends up happening is when he does it, all of a sudden this crazy loud roar comes out. The hyenas scramble and Simba's wondering what in the world just came out of him. It wasn't his roar at all. The roar of his dad was behind him. And his dad stood behind Simba, empowered Simba. And what the enemy saw wasn't the little Simba. They saw his father behind him, empowering him. Listen, hear me. We can get inspired from a cartoon. We can get inspired from God's word. And when I look at God's word, here's what I see. I see that God empowers us to do his will. I see that God empowers us to be leaders. And listen to me, don't you ever tell me, because I'll just go off on you. 
Don't you ever tell me that God didn't make you a leader. Don't you ever tell me that God didn't call you to lead because God has called you to be the leader of your story, the leader in your circle of friends, the leader in your workplace towards the cause of Christ. Verse seven, and there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the first month, he came to Jerusalem. Why? For the good hand of his God was on him. Verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart. Hmm. So why was God's hand on him? For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and his rules. He studied. He knew it. He loved it. He lived it. Let's recap for a moment. God's hand must be upon your life for you to do anything significant. His will, his way, his timing. Preparation is key. But then look at verse 10, and I love this. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God, to do it, and to teach it. Hmm. So what is one thing we need to understand? We must consistently study the word of of God. We must be in it consistently. I think all too often you think that if you guys come in here once a week, maybe you come on a Wednesday, maybe you come to a men's or a women's Bible study, that is sufficient. Y'all, can I just go ahead and tell you, us feeding you every week is a pleasure, but it shouldn't be the only sustenance you give yourself. If one day (laughs) the people that have been cooking for you stop cooking for you, you would learn to cook for yourself. And I think it's important that you guys learn how to feed yourself the word of God on a daily basis. This IBC 260, it's more than a program. It is the study of God's word. Do it, get into it, live it, the consistent study. But then you see the practice. He doesn't just study the law of the Lord. He just doesn't study God's word. He says he does it. He did it. Ezra set his heart to study it and to do it. This is huge. First of all, you can't do what you don't know. So study is incredibly important. But all too often, we have so many smart Christians, so many smart Christians. You have ingested God's word, but you haven't lived it out. Y'all, one time I went to a zoo and this zoo had these big old black bears in it. And there was this one black bear that was laying on his side. And I found out he was so fat, he couldn't even get up because people could pay to throw food to the black bear. And this black bear couldn't get up to any of the food. He would let the food come to him. He would just take his paw and scoop it into his mouth. And he ingested so much, he couldn't even get up. I've said it before, I'll say it again. There are so many Christians that are spiritually fat. You've ingested so much of God's word, but you've never lived it out. You have never done anything with it. And I think God looks at us sometimes like we look at that black bear. My goodness, you've just become such a fat Christian. You're ingesting and ingesting and ingesting, but you're not living it out. You're not actually using the fuel to fuel you. And I think that that's important. I think that's a problem of Christians. We are so smart. We know God's word so well, but we do not live it out. He lived it out. He did it. And because he did it, other people followed along. Leaders can never ask anybody to do, you can't ask anybody to do anything you're not willing to do. 
If we're called as Christians to be leaders, we have to set the example not just in our study, but in our action, not just in our knowledge, but in our deeds. He practices the word of God. But then lastly, what does he do? He teaches the word of God to others. He teaches the word of God to others. 2 Timothy 2.2 teaches us this. That which we have received from faithful men, we are to commit to others that they may be able to teach others also. This is the whole concept of disciples who create disciples. Disciples make disciples. Those who have been found, find. If Jesus has found you, you're called to find others. You're called to teach others the statues in the ways of Jesus. We're supposed to create a culture that follows after Jesus. And the reason why we don't have one is because we're not doing our job. We can complain all the time about how horrible the culture is. It's because Christians haven't tried to make a difference in the culture as hard as we should. Start, stop complaining and start doing. Hear me out. When I look at this, I think, man, we love to teach in our circle. We love to teach the people that are here. We love to teach Christians. And oh my goodness, that is fun. But that's not exactly what it's talking about. It's talking about looking outward and teaching those who are not volunteering to be taught. See, what happens is, you want to know why churches are dying? I love this phrase. The reason why churches are dying is because they forgot that their charge has been to be fishers of men. They've just become keepers of the aquarium. They just want to keep their aquarium clean, keep the fish they got happy. That's not what we're called to do. See, God looks at Christians like, like a rich investor looks at his dollars. What does a rich investor do? He sends his dollars out to make friends and to come back with more friends. That's what an investor does. Do you see that that's what Jesus does with us? He sends us out so that we can make disciples and come back, making him a wise investor. My goodness, I think we're supposed to make Jesus look good for sending us out. We're supposed to teach. Let me leave you with this. When I first got married to Laura Ashley, she was a middle school choir teacher, middle school choir director. Can I tell you, that was a hard job. You were having to deal with kids that didn't want to be there. Trying to teach a bunch of kids that had to have that credit wasn't a whole lot of fun. But you know what she really enjoyed? She really enjoyed teaching private lessons because teaching the same thing, but to a student that wanted to be there versus a student that didn't care to be there made all the difference in the world. But hear me, we as Christians, we're called to do both. We're called to do both. And if our inreach isn't as impactful as our outreach, if our outreach isn't as impactful as our inreach, we've got a problem. I think they're supposed to balance one another and hear me. If all we care about is discipling one another, the church will die as we die. We are called to make much of Jesus, to take the inward circle and face it outward. Hey, listen, in a moment, we're going to have an altar call. Listen, if you don't know anything about Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I mean this every week I say it, please come and talk to me. Please come and talk to us. Do not leave this room without understanding that you can't lead until you have the right leader. And without Jesus, you will never be the leading one in your story. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for today. God, I thank you for the opportunity we have to make much of you. God, I pray you'll inspire us to be leaders. 
but help us to lead in your ways, in your statutes, in your directions. Help us to lead as we are led by you. Lord, I pray you'll soften hearts today. In your name we pray.